0: You guys have seen the uh, popular advertisements, the before and after things that they do, you know, on TV and everything, haven't you? Has everybody seen the before and after pictures? Nobody. If you haven't seen that, raise your hand, because then you, I got to make sure you're alive. Uh, put, put, put some of those up there, would you, Steve? Uh, yeah, here are some examples of before and after. Most of the time, when they do before and after stuff, it's, uh, the idea is to sell something, isn't it? They want to sell weight loss, they want to sell hair transplants, they want to sell uh, something. And so they show you this before picture that is usually about as ugly as you can get, and then they show you an after picture that's about as flattering as you can get, you know? And, and the whole reason is to get you to buy whatever it is they're selling, you know, unless they're just doing it for fun. And some people just put those up there for fun too but uh, but you get kind of what that 's like in ephesians two The reason that I began with this before and after thing is that 's exactly what 's taking place. the apostle Paul. Uh, wants to give us a picture of before we've accepted christ and then a picture of what we're like after we've accepted christ he says once you are in christ or the words that he uses in christ so he paints this picture of what it is before and after but let me ask you guys a question uh who are the when, when people do these advertisements for these things who are they geared to who are they pointed to which category anybody all of us, all of us. But if if, if it's advertised, it's for the before guys, right? I mean, I, I probably could be a uh, you know um, a thinning hair kind of person. I'm, I I keep looking and there's less and less. You can see through it now. I have transparent hair, and um, and you know, in these these deals, they do hair transplants and all that stuff. They could probably make me look really good with a full head of hair, you know. And um, but they they target it to guys like because if you I already had a full head of hair. It wouldn't matter. I'm not interested. I already look great, man, with my hair being full, you know. And um, so they target it to the before people. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is writing this letter to Christians in Ephesus. And he's telling them, look, you guys are in the after category, but you're acting like you're in the before category. So let me remind you of what you were like before Jesus. Then let me show you what you did to get to the after category and then remind you of what you're like in the after category so you can begin to act like you are after instead of acting like you are before. So that's that's the emphasis that he is pointing out in the entire second chapter there of Ephesians. You know, when I was a grade school kid. We had this lady hanging around our house. I'll never forget her because... She, she was always wearing these really um, ratty clothes, you know. I mean, she, she and, and she lived in an apartment where she would hardly ever turn on the heat because she was trying to save money. And um, I'll never forget one day as a little kid, she'd come up and, look what I got, man. She had two dead chickens she was walking around with. She'd found a chicken that got hit by a car or something on the side of the road. And, man, she got that thing and she had plucked it and she was going to eat it. And and uh, she was so excited about finding this chicken. And, and she was just... Poor, poor, poor. And um, and then when I got in late grade school, I found out she died. And I asked my mom, I said, What happened to her? And she said, Well, I'm not we're not sure why she was older anyway, but you know, um, she they found her in her apartment and she had died. And um, and then they found out that she had all kinds of cash, that she had all kinds of stuff, that she owned some apartment buildings, and she died not turning the heat on in her apartment. She had everything she needed to live comfortably for many lifetimes. And she was living like she had none of it. And Paul comes to us and he says, guys, believers, listen to me. Some of you are acting as though you are somebody you are not. Quit living without when you have so much. And so he is pointing out, pointing toward our identity, how we see ourselves in Christ. I believe personally that short of salvation, I mean after salvation, once we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, I believe personally the most important thing that we can get a hold of, that we can begin to understand is who we are in Jesus, our identity in Jesus Christ, because it changes everything. It changes how we see ourselves, it changes how we act, it changes what we're willing to do, it changes where we'll go, it changes who we live for, I mean, it changes everything. So we're going to see that in a moment. And, um, and then we're also going to see this bridge about how to get from the before to after, which Paul points out to us. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to zip through the whole thing, and um, we'll start at verse 1. I am using the New Living Translation here, but whatever translation you have, that's fine. It, you'll see it follows along. And verses 1, 2, 3, and 12 give us this before picture, okay? So here we go Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So Paul is pointing out that before Christ, you were dead in your sins. I love to see you guys out with your Bibles. If you want to put like. In your chapter, you could put before and after and just underline the, what they are, the befores and afters in there. You would see them all. Also then, so he says, before Christ, you were dead in your sins. And then we look at the last part of that verse. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So before Christ, you were disobedient and sinful. That's also in verse one. Verse two, he goes on to say, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. So Paul is pointing out that the world as a whole, as a culture that we live in is sinful and it lives in sin. It, it, it keeps us in sin. You name the sin and, and we can find a way that our culture actually glorifies that sin, glamorizes it. I mean, think of lust, every billboard. Think of greed, our economy. Think of selfishness. Just about every movie you watch, every TV show you watch, every something else you watch is all about somebody getting what they want some way or somehow, right? So that's how the the world is already operating, Paul is telling us. So now we go on, verse 2. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. So before Christ, Paul's saying you were following the devil or obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. So the excuse, the devil made me do it, doesn't work for us, right? If you're a believer, it doesn't lessen our responsibility. So here's what happens for people who are not believers. If you told them, you know what? You're before Christ. You're actually obeying the devil. You're following the devil. They say, no, I'm not. I'm not following the devil. Who do you think you are telling me that? I'm just doing what I want to do. That's all. Well, let's see. The devil's objective is to keep you from following God. The devil's objective is to keep you from pleasing God. And so the person who says, I'm not following after God, I'm just doing whatever I want to do is actually following the devil or obeying the devil, even if they don't know it because they are doing things that keep them away from God. So that's what Paul is showing us here. He's saying, hey, before Christ, you were following the devil. You didn't even know it. And you were, you were obeying him. And then he goes on in verse 3. All of us used to live that way. So everyone did. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. That's verse 3. So before Christ, you were sinful by nature. You were naturally sinful. We naturally, it's very interesting, isn't it? When we we decide we want to do things for ourselves, that we tend to want to do things that ultimately are self-destructive. They lead to problems with us. If we don't put God first, we put ourselves first. That's where we tend to go, right? And if you don't buy this, talk to anybody who's been trapped in addictions, and they'll tell you how how horrible that is to be going to a place that's away from God. It's a natural desire. True freedom comes when we're no longer subject to those fleshly desires that pull us, that are ultimately self-destructive, pull us in that direction. He goes on in verse 3 and says... By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So before Christ, you were subject to God's anger. i got to talk about this for a second because some of you, first of all, it seems to be politically incorrect to talk about God being angry at us. So people just avoid it, you know. And, and I think the other reason is this. Because we tend to think of anger over here and love over here, don't we? Like they're the opposite, Anger and love are not the opposite, friends. They're really not. To truly love, we got to have some anger. And so what God is saying is he is angry at those who are not following after him. Why? Because he loves them and he wants them to follow after him. Has there ever been somebody in your life who you dearly loved, who was, um, who was being taken down by addictions or by something else? And you hate those things. You're angry at those things. I'll tell you what. I have been so angry at meth, at heroin, at cocaine, at alcohol, because I've seen what it's done to people I love. And I've been really angry at them for following after it. My youngest son, for 10 years, I was angry at him. I loved him intensely. I wasn't angry at him as in yelling and screaming at him when I saw him, no, I was angry that he was heading in a direction that wasn't where God wanted him to go. And so anger and love aren't the opposite. We end up being angry if we truly love somebody because we love them. And that's the picture that we have here. God saying, I am angry at those who are away from me because I love you so much. I want you to come toward me. Now, verse 12 picks up four more things of before Christ. Just bam, 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 bam. Here they are. Uh, In those days, you were living apart from Christ. So before Christ, you were separated from him. You were separated from Christ. It goes on to say, You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. So before Christ, you were unaware of God's promises. You were just completely unaware of them. And then it goes on to say, You lived in this world without God. So before Christ you were without God. You were without him. And then it concludes by saying, you lived in this world without God and without hope. So we're without God and you were without hope. Paul paints this, really it's a pretty ugly picture, isn't it? Of all of what we are without and how we're separated from and how we we are subject to and all of those things. That's the before picture, destitute. Now remember, Paul is talking to people, not in the before picture. He's talking to people in the after picture. He's saying, he's he's just reminding them, this is what you were before you met Jesus. By the way, this does not mean that people in the before category are not valuable to God. Quite the opposite. Because God's word says that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. That's how valuable we were to him. Even in the before category, we're so valuable. You were so valuable to God. He died for you while you were still a sinner. And that's the place you were. But but when we see this before category, gang, it should make us really concerned for our family and friends who don't know Jesus Because they're not in a good place when we see this picture of where they're at. It should be our desire to see them move from before to after. So Paul says, let me show you how that's done. In verse 8, he shows us the bridge that takes us from before to after. Verse 8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so no one can boast about it the bridge is that by grace you have been saved through faith now a lot of you know that verse and know that verse that's the king james way of saying it uh, the same thing that we just read by grace you have been saved through faith so salvation is is by god's grace which means that god is giving us something that we don't deserve he's given us this this grace i'm going to give you something you don't deserve that's how we receive salvation we receive it by faith saying i accept it lord so jesus comes pays the price for our sins by being the perfect lamb of God, which is what the scripture said he was gonna do 700 years before he came. And he comes and he dies on the cross paying the price for your sins. And he says, that's the free gift of God. By his grace, you don't deserve it. It's given to you and you receive it by faith. Saying, I accept the gift thank you for what you've done. I want to make you my savior and my Lord. And so that's what it is. Nothing you've earned simply, very simply a gift to be believed and accepted. And the devil wants us to think we got to earn it. He wants to convince you that, hey, hey, you've got to do something for this. And God's going, no, there's nothing you can do for this. It's only because of my great love for you and my amazing grace that that word actually means unmerited favor is what it means. Uh, I've provided a way for you to come across that bridge. And when you come across that bridge, you are a new person. You have a new identity. Now, one of the things about a new identity is this. And ladies, you know this who've been married. When you got married, you changed your identity from a miss to a missus, and most of you changed your last name or at least a hyphen name. Something changed, and it changed big, didn't it? And guys, you thought I'd get to keep my name, but guess what? You changed too. (laughs) You changed big time when you got married, okay? There was a change in identity of who you are, of how you live your life. And if you don't live the way that the change has come, your partner's not going to be very happy with you. Because you're not living up to the commitment you made when you said, I do. And God is no different. So God says, I've given you now a new identity. When you've received the salvation and made me Lord, you stepped over the bridge from before to after. You are now in Christ. And then Paul says, now let me show you all the great things you've got in Christ. So watch. Here we go. Verse 5. But and We'll start with verse 4, but get to verse 5. In Christ you're given life. In Christ Jesus. But God is so rich in mercy. By the way, mercy, you know, we just talked about grace is that unmerited favor, something we don't deserve. Mercy means we don't get something we do deserve. So we don't get the punishment we do deserve. So Paul is saying God is so rich in mercy, he doesn't give you the punishment you deserve. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sin, spiritually dead, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. He goes on to say that it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So God's incredible mercy keeps you from getting what you deserve and his grace gives you something you don't deserve. So in Christ, you're saved from sin, from death and hell, which is what the Bible says. We are in line for otherwise, right? It says we're condemned already. Christ didn't come to condemn us. He says we were already condemned. And that, and that was the picture. So we're saved from those things. Verse 6. In Christ you are united with Christ. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So afterwards our identity has changed. After you got married, your identity changed. You were united with somebody else. Now we've been united with Christ. Our identity changes. Verse 7. In Christ, we are recipients of his kindness. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. I want you to get this picture. It says here that uh, all future ages, God can point to you if you know jesus he's saying i want to be able to point to you to future generations to point out what how awesome you are no to point out how awesome he is because of his mercy and grace and kindness to you and so he says three generations from now i'm going to say you can't believe what happened three generations ago ryan Carrie, Scott, are you kidding me? They actually had so much grace and mercy given to them. Look how, look, look at what I did for them. God will be able to say to all future ages because of what He's done for you. Wow, that's a, that's, a, that's incredible to me. And He says, goes on in verse ten and says, "In Christ, you're recreated as God's masterpiece. You see how your identity is being changed. For we are God's." masterpiece. Some of your translations say craftsmanship. The idea is that God has created us and now is recreating us as his masterpiece. He has created us anew or recreated us in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us to do long ago. We'll come back to that little piece a little later. But verse 13 then he goes on, in Christ you're near to God. Once you were far away from God. But now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. And then in both verse 14 and 17, he says, in Christ, when we are in Christ, you are given peace. Verse 14 says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. And 17, he brought this good news of peace to you, to you Gentiles who were far away from him. By the way. Jesus made it clear, the peace he gives us is not what we can think of as the peace the world gives, right? He says, I come to you and I've given you peace, but it's not the peace the world gives. The peace I'm giving you is a peace that passes understanding. People won't even get it, how you can actually have peace as you go through things. Because I'm in you, Christ in you. And then he goes on in verse 16 and says, in Christ, you're reconciled with God. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups, that so he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, to God by means of his death on the cross. And once we're reconciled with him, we're made right, that's what reconciled means, we're made correct with him, then we get access to God the Father. That's what verse 18 tells us. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So he's opened up the way. And that, that's why when he died, the veil in the temple was torn in two. It was God's w- way of saying symbolically, that, that veil in the temple was two feet thick and it, it hid the holy of holies from the holy. And God said, no, no, I'm ripping that dude open so people can come directly to me now because of what Christ has done for them. And so he's opened that up so that we can have, uh, go directly to him. Verse 19 tells us that in Christ... You are a member of God's family. It says you are members of God's family. Pretty straightforward. And in 20 and 21, tells us that in Christ, you are God's house and a holy temple. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple of the Lord. Wow. We are his house. You, you're his temple. If you have a relationship with him, he's saying, I want you to be my house. I want you to be my temple. Now, right now, I'm hoping my house is empty because if it's not, somebody knows I'm not there, and they're collecting things. So uh, hopefully my house is empty right now. Uh, But you know what? The beauty of this is, is he is saying, look, you are to be my house, you are to be my temple, and I will live in you. I'll live in you. That's verse 22, the final one. In Christ, you are where God lives. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Here's the deal, gang. If you understand, once you've accepted Jesus, God's spirit lives inside of you. He lives inside of you. He is the great counselor. He is the great comforter. So that when he lives inside of us and he's the great counselor and the great comforter, then as we're going through life, we should be very willing to say, Hey, Hey, hey Lord, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do there? What do you want me to do right now? I was talking to uh, a young man, reasonably young man, uh, just last week. And he told me, he says, man, I got ticked off. He says, I got so ticked off at her for what she did to me that I just decided to go binge. I said, really, what'd you do? Man, he said, I went to some strip clubs. I went here, I went there, and I did all these different things. and, and, And he says, do you think, do you think God's still in me? And he was a little bit worried about it. And I said, you know what the travesty is, my friend? You thought you went to those places, but you know what you did? Because you've accepted Jesus Christ, in your immaturity, you drug Jesus right into those places. The Spirit lives in you. And he did not willingly want to go in there, and you took him in. Because his Spirit is inside of you. You've accepted him. He wants to reside in us. And now, remember, go back to that verse 10. He says, here's what I want to do. I've created you for good works. I've got stuff for you to do. And he says, and i prepared them in advance for you. So the cool thing about this is, we don't have to be thinking about what it is. He says, I've already prepared them in advance. You follow me. I've put you inside of me. And as you go... I've got those works lined up right there for you to be able to be engaged in, for you to be able to do, for you to, for you to be my witness where you go. Those things are already lined up because you are my craftsmanship. You're my masterpiece. I created you to be that way. Wow. God sees you that way. He sees you as his unique craftsmanship. That's why he created no one else exactly like you you're it you're a one-off that's it there is no other and he says this is my craftsmanship this is who i've created to be able to, to to allow me to reside in them and i will do my good works through them now i want you to notice something this is really important it's not the works that save the works flow out of our gratitude because we are saved. So we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Do you see the difference? If we don't get the difference gang, then what we do is we create a religious spirit around ourselves. This is so important because what I see it with many Christians is one of two things when they're not walking the way, when they don't understand their real identity, I see one, they want to be religious. And, and, and th- so they're doing everything they're doing. They're working harder to try to please Jesus. And they're obnoxious as all get out. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Because they kind of get holier than thou about it too because they're doing all these good things for God. Give me a break you didn't deserve it. God just put you there. Or or I see people forgetting who they are and deciding to go wherever they want to go instead of going, wait a minute, God, your mercy, your kindness, your grace, I should so humbly be serving you. I want to do the things that you want me to be engaged with. So the works are not a result of salvation. They're a cause of salvation. Do you see the difference between the two? We get saved and then we go, oh Lord, I want to do these things for you. So, As we close this morning, I couldn't, there's two questions I've got to ask you. And the one is this, the one, Paul wasn't really getting at this one, but I can't help it because it's right there in the middle. That whole bridge piece. He he wasn't really trying to get at it because he wasn't writing to the people in the before category, right? But he's, it's so obvious. He's saying, if you're before, you need to take this bridge to get to the after, So I got to ask this morning if you are, if that's you, I just want to encourage you to to read that Ephesians 8, by grace are you saved through faith alone in Jesus, and for you to walk across that bridge, and I'm telling you, there are people here who would love to pray with you, who would love to walk you into that relationship, so you can go across that bridge, you can go across it today, from before to after, to all of these benefits that we just got done covering. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up today, and I'm going to tell you why, because that's too easy. When you tell people, bow their heads, close their eyes, put your hand up if you want to be saved by Jesus, and pray this prayer. I'm going to tell you, Jesus calls us to be bold. And if you're in that category, you need to come and find somebody afterwards and say, I need, to, I need to know how to walk through that. Or I haven't done that. I've been around this place for a while, but I don't think I've actually walked across that bridge. Will you help me? Will you help me accomplish that? Will you help me do that? And the second piece is, for those of you who are an after person, I've got to ask you, are you living with the freedom and grace of your new identity. I was thinking about this and I was thinking, how can I explain this? How can I describe this in a way that people can really understand it? So I'm gonna give you an analogy that I, I, I'm hoping you can follow me along here. You're gonna see what I'm talking about, all right? Um, when my son Elijah was in third grade, he played Wee football, Pop Warner football got the whole pads on the whole ball. His first time playing tackle. Now, when you're in third grade and you're beginning to play tackle football, they keep things pretty simple. And so they told him, you're going to play defensive end. Now, those of you who don't know football, I'm going to help you out here. Uh, If this is the defensive line right here, the offense has the ball. They're trying to go this way. Your idea is not to let them go that way, right? You don't want to let them score a touchdown. So the defensive end is at the end of the line. So he's over here at the end of the line. And they told him very simply, look, your deal is this. You, as soon as the ball is snapped, you step across like this and you don't let him get around you. Because if they get around the defensive end, it's probably bye-bye. They're gone unless you got somebody really fast to chase them down. So they just pounded it in his head. Your job as a defensive end is to come across there and contain. Don't let them get around you. And so the first three games, I'm watching him play defensive end. He's switching from side to side. Next thing you know, he's on this side. The ball is snapped, and he jumps out like this, and he's making sure they don't get around him. And the guy runs up right up to him, and he's making sure he doesn't. And the guy goes this way, and he goes, thank you very much. Go right ahead. And Dad's on the sidelines going, "Dude, tackle him. What are you doing? And I'm going crazy. You know, I'm mildly competitive. And so, uh, you know, and after every game, I'm talking to him about it. And he's not listening, man. He's going my coach told me. I know what my coach told me to do. I'm doing what my coach told me to do. And I'm saying, yeah, I, I, son, I understand. I played the game. I know. I understand. Defense heaven, you, you got to contain. But after you make sure they can't get around you, you can go do some havoc. Not getting through. And I think it was the fourth game of the season or something like that. And... Um, and the, and the other team's got the ball. He's in defensive end. Ball is snapped. He comes across like this, and I don't know what happened. I think the quarterback started to kind of run into somebody, kind of, kind of like he just kind of bumped into him, you know? And, oh, here he is. Oh, hello. Tackled him, and everybody went crazy. Coaches in the sideline. Way to go! You sacked him. Way to go! You sacked him. You know? And, and he gets up off of that, and he's looking around. Everybody's cheering and yelling. It was like somebody went ah! <laughs> flip the switch on. Lights come on, and he all of a sudden goes. Oh, I don't have to just do this. Once I do this, I'm free to go get him. I'm free to... And all of a sudden, he started to understand the game. He had three sacks and two run stuffs in the rest of the game. And dad was, yeah, buddy, go get him. By the end of the game, the coaches are calling him tater. Tater tatama, man, you're taking him out, you know. And the rest of the season, that's when he went in. Completely changed who he was. He saw it completely differently. When he began to understand the game, it allowed him to play with freedom. Do you? Are we tracking? When you are identified in Jesus Christ and you know he loves you so much that he died for you, when you really start to understand that, you're not so worried about, I gotta, I gotta follow all the rules and do them just right. And okay, that's it for me. No, you've got freedom. He says, you understand, wherever you go, I'm in you. I want to do these works with you. I'll point them out to you. I live inside of you. And all of a sudden, you can begin to play the game with freedom, with joy. And and so my encouragement to you is if you are in the after category and you're feeling yourself like you're just following all these rules and trying to do everything right, I'm going to ask you to stop and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you show me how to live in you with the freedom you give me? You know, once he started to do that, once Elijah started to play that way, there was a couple times they actually got around him and the coaches were like, no, no, this guy gets the game now. No, we understand you made a mistake. No problem. Just get back in there and get him. And you know, that's, that's, that's our father. That's our father. He says, I I know your heart. I know you're about the game. I know you're, you're trying to do what I asked you to do. You've got some freedom. Don't stress so much. You're my kid. Go out, enjoy it, play with enthusiasm, be excited about playing the game. It's what I've created you for. It's what he's created you for. If you're finding yourself, that's not what you're feeling, and you're feeling instead tension, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing I asked the people who don't know Jesus to do. You find somebody, and and you say, would you pray with me about this? This is the way I'm feeling, and I'm just finding out here. Paul wrote this entire letter to Christians. It's not new. They were feeling the same way in Ephesus way back then. Many of them were acting the same way. And Paul said, pay attention. Stop. Don't do that. See who you are in him? See all these tremendous things he gave you? Ah, oh, you ought to just be living it with enthusiasm and excited about it. Right? So if you are not, I'm asking you, if you don't have the guts to go talk to somebody and pray about it right here afterwards, you get with the Holy Spirit, because he'll speak to you and say, Lord, would you show me in me what, what what in me? What's in me that's causing me to do that? Some of you it's well intentioned, but somewhere along the line you think you gotta earn it. And he's gotta show you, no, you can't. I love you so much, I just want you to live for me. Just let me live in and through you. And let me change other people because of how much you love me. Amen.